This episode of Women on the Rise is sponsored by The Riveter, a work and collaborative space built for change makers. Stay tuned to the end for more information about how you can join The Riveter's movement for women and allies to succeed. Intentional imperfectionism is the exact same thing as self-compassion. What it really comes down to is forgiving yourself for being human. Welcome to Women on the Rise. I'm your host, Lara Dolch, and each week I talk to thriving women about the practical self-care strategies they use to fuel their success and pursue what's most important to them in their careers and lives. We get real about topics like healthy eating, exercise, sleep, stress, time management, happiness, and productivity, while busting myths about work-life balance and being perfect along the way. My goal each week is to uncover a new insight or practical strategy that you can immediately apply to your life to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul without turning your life upside down. Today, I'm talking to Melissa Dinwiddie, a happiness catalyst and creativity instigator who helps people turn their creative taps to the on position so they can stop living in black, white, and gray and start living in full color. Melissa is on a mission to change the conversation around creative expression and play because she believes that creating makes you feel more alive and it's how you change the world. Thanks so much for being here, Melissa. Thanks for having me. I'm that delighted. Is good stuff. I'm like reading that thinking to myself, oh, I want a piece of that. That sounds fantastic. Awesome. Well, and I love the idea of living life in full color because actually on my website, I use that. On your website, I noticed that there was this with the Wizard of Oz analogy with, you know, black and white versus technicolor. And I use the exact same analogy on my website when I'm talking about the way that you feel when you start paying more attention to self-care and how you feel more vibrant and alive and in tune and your world becomes, yeah, more colorful. So I loved that. And I would love just to start about, to talk about how um, reconnecting with creativity helps you live that way. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, reconnecting with creativity is radical self-care. Mm. And for me, I felt, I, I feel like in my, when I look back at my own life, my own journey, I spent, I don't even know how many years really believing that I was not just not an artist, but a non-creative person. Yeah. And I know that I'm not alone. I know there are a lot of people out there. Yeah, who, I think most people don't most people, think they're creative. Yeah, most people <laughs> think they're not creative. And the reality is creativity is, is baked into our genes. We are by nature, all human beings, we are, hum, are, we are creative. That is our birthright. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we all want to paint or make music or write poems. Creativity comes out in all different ways. It, you know, we are naturally problem solvers and dot connectors and pattern finders and makers. Mm -hmm. That is what we do as humans. And we want to express ourselves. And yeah. when we are forbidden from doing that, and when that is quashed down in us, it it's unhealthy. It makes us feel crappy. Mm -hmm. And I spent so many years of my life believing I was not creative. And when I look back at those times in my life, I, it just feels like that black and white period in the wizard of Oz, you know? And when wow. I 
gave myself permission again to, you know, live like a four-year-old, following <laughs> my curiosity and exploring and expressing the creativity inside of me. It really was like that, you know, that Wizard of Oz moment after the tornado of, oh my God, there's color. Imagine, isn't this amazing? Yeah. That is sort of the best way to describe that feeling of bringing creativity, creative expression back into my life. And, and really the route to come back to creativity and creative expression is play. Yeah. And I also, I think what you were saying earlier, there's so much packed in there that I want to talk about. Like, obviously I love, I love that you think of creativity as radical self-care. I think that's so amazing. And I actually um, was talking to one of my earlier podcast interviews. She was talking about how her work as a writer, um, she considered that self-care, you know, yeah. and for, for the exact same reason that you're, that you're talking about. Can you actually, it occurs to me, can you back up a little bit and tell people you're talking about this time in your life where it felt black, white, and gray, and then you had this experience of reconnecting with your creativity. Can you tell people a little bit more about your story and how, you know, what that period was like and what was going on and, and how you got where you are? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if we go all the way back to say kindergarten, kids at that age, say four or five years old, pretty much everybody around that age, we have permission to play, right? Mm -hmm. We have permission to play with the markers and play with our pencils and play with mud and, you know, make mud pies <laughs> and play in the sandbox and all those things. We're expected to do that when we're really little, right? And I remember, must have been around Easter time because my friends, Laura and Mandy, were drawing chickies and bunnies at the marker table. <laughs> and I thought, wow, those chickies and bunnies are so cool. I want to draw chickies and bunnies like that too. And so I did. I copied them and we all drew chickies and bunnies and it was so fun <laughs> and we laughed and giggled and it was awesome. A year later, first grade, Aaron Brody was drawing race cars and they were amazing. Nice. They were so like realistic race cars. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, he's so good at drawing. He draws so much better mm -hmm. than I can draw. He is better than I am. I can't draw that well. Now, I had no interest in drawing race cars. I didn't care about race cars. But I, at that age, developmentally, kids are really starting to pay attention to what every other kid is doing, right? Yeah. And my gremlins, no, I didn't have this terminology back then, <laughs> but my gremlin voices were starting to say, wow, Melissa, you suck compared yeah. to him. Aaron yeah. Brody's better at art than you are. You must not be an artist. Those yeah, voices. Exactly. It was starting to happen. Mm -hmm. Now that didn't shut me down yet. But cut to seventh grade, 13 years old, all along, you know, the years in between, I was, you know, I was an artist and I was in all the after school gifted art classes and everything. A lot of kids got shut down mm -hmm. all along the way. Six, six years old, a lot of kids were like, oh, I'm not an artist. I'm not good enough. So they, they got shut down super young, right? For me, it happened at 13. I'm in this after school class 
I think it was actually an adult art class because I was good at art, right? <laughs> we're all outside in the courtyard and we're drawing trees. Everybody's drawing trees. And we come inside to look at everybody's trees. And everybody else's trees look like trees. In fact, I can recognize the exact trees in the courtyard that everybody else has drawn. My tree looks like a scribble. <laughs> and my gremlin voices, again, I don't have this terminology. I don't, real, I don't know they're gremlins. All I know yeah. is the voice is telling me, and I can't identify as a, it as a voice. All I know it's the, is it, it's the truth from what all I can tell, yeah. is telling me they're the real artists. That means, Melissa, you are not. Mm -hmm. And I quit. Mm -hmm. I didn't do any art for 15 years. Wow. Completely quit because I wasn't an artist. They, these other people, they were the real artists. I wasn't. Yeah. Same thing happened to me with music. I had played piano for from first grade through seventh grade. And then I started doing violin and viola because at the time there was music in the schools. Of course, that's mm -hmm. all been decimated yeah, in the sadly. meantime. Stopped doing music a couple years after I quit making art. And, you know, for, let's see, from 15 till uh, 13 till 28, no art in my life. Mm -hmm. um, picked up music again at age, what, 32, I think is when I started making music again. So I now refer to that as like my 15 year hiatus. <laughs> Your sabbatical. <laughs> my from sabbatical, being creative. right. Exactly. <laughs> but I had this self identity as a non-creative person. Now, during the time I actually dove into dance, that was my, that was my like, okay, this is where I'm creative. This mm -hmm. is my art form. And I got super serious about dance. And I pursued that as a career path mm -hmm. until I got injured. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of that. And my, the other thing that I did that I was good at was academia, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is a pretty, as far as pursuits go, is a pretty non-creative pursuit because you're basically following in the footsteps of other people. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of criticism in the academic world. Right, it's right. not a world that encourages you to push the envelope. It's a lot of pleasing a single authority figure, mm -hmm. right? Although, you know, it's interesting. I would actually, and you can disagree with me, but I would argue that there's even creativity in that because I sort of, it's sort of like what you were saying earlier, like creativity doesn't have to mean painting or dancing or Absolutely. drawing or whatever. It's to me, it's like the true definition of creativity is creating something out of nothing. So anytime you're doing that, you're being creative, right? And, and I, I wanted to mention that because I struggled with that for a long time too. Like I didn't start thinking of myself as a creative person until, you know, yeah, probably 10, 15 years ago, 10, 10 years ago, probably because I was in the business world. I'm like, I'm not creative. Like I'm in the creative side of the business world. I was in marketing, but like, I'm not creative. Well, yeah, sure. Sure. Like even when you were in academia, right? Wouldn't you say there were some things that you created? <laughs> For sure. I wrote papers and that, yeah. that was super exciting for me. I loved writing papers and that drew on my, create. I had to create something out of nothing. Absolutely. Right. But 
it wasn't uh, a realm in which I was able to really tap into the fullness of sure. my self-expression. Yeah, got it. That's the, and that's the key, right? That's right. The self-expression piece of it, right? Because you were sort of following these rules or in these sort of small frameworks to when you were, right. you were creating, but you were, you had a lot of rules to, to do it in, I guess. Yeah. Is that right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, human beings can't help but be creative. And we will be creative within whatever framework mm -hmm. we are, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, if you are in a, a really tightly prescribed framework, um, it doesn't allow us the fullness of our self-expression that perhaps another framework yeah. might allow us, right? Yeah. So. I, I went on, I pursued what I thought was going to be a, a PhD path mm -hmm. and realized, oh, this is not right for me. Came home, I was getting a master's degree in cultural studies in England, realized I cannot get myself to fill out these PhD applications. <laughs> <laughs> Some part of me was smarter than... Yeah, that's a good sign or a bad yeah. sign, depending on the way you look at it. <laughs> well, at the time I thought, now what do I do? I had this path all figured out. Right, right. Oh. I want to have this clear path figured out and I couldn't get myself to fill out the PhD application. So now I didn't, now I was flailing around lost again. Mm -hmm. So I came home back home to California and I got engaged to the man that I never should have married, but <laughs> that's a whole other story for a different time, right? <laughs> but the fact that I did end up marrying this man, actually there were tons of silver linings with that because I planned this wedding, which was a hugely creative act. Sure. Yeah probably my first really big creative act as like self, ex self, ex fully self-expressed mm -hmm, act, shall we say mm -hmm. as an adult. And because I was married to somebody who earned a, a pretty good living, I had lots of time in order to explore. And I started taking all kinds of art classes and discovered, uh, I ended up discovering the art of calligraphy and fell madly in nice. love with that and ended up turning that into a business and became a ketubah artist. A ketubah is a Jewish marriage contract and it's a traditional part of oh, every right. Jewish wedding ceremony. Okay. I was going to say, I knew I know that word somewhere, but I couldn't place it. Very cool. Yeah. So that became my primary art form, calligraphy and ketubah art for about a dozen years. And mm -hmm. then when my marriage ended in 1999, um, suddenly I had to ma really make a living from this. It was kind of a hobby business. I mm -hmm, had to really mm -hmm. turn it into a, a real business <laughs> right. in Silicon Valley, which is extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. And because of that, this, this uh, little business that I had, you know, I'd taken this art form and turned it into a business now this thing that I had started really doing from passion, it was all about, I got to make money from everything I do and everything I do has to be amazing because it has to impress people. Mm -hmm. And it really sucked all the joy out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I got really burned out. And that is what ultimately led me to start my, my blog, living a creative life. Mm -hmm. And now it's turned into my podcast, live creative now. And ultimately led to my book, The Creative Sandbox Way, which is based around my 10 guideposts, which helped me let go of the perfectionist paralysis that mm. I got so mired in mm -hmm. from, but you know, feeling like everything I created had to be amazing and it had to impress other people and I had to make money from it. 
So yeah. I got, I got into this place where I completely forgot how to play. Yeah. Which is what had gotten me so excited about creating again was, you know, being, inhabiting that mind space of being a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten how to do that. So my central metaphor is the idea of a creative sandbox where it's all about really inhabiting the mind space of, of a four-year-old again. Yeah. And how do you, since we're talking about self-care and well-being, what did you notice or what have you noticed about your sort of sense of well-being, you know, looking at the the black and white time, the black, white, and gray time versus the technicolor time? What has changed? Um, so, you know, so much of it is, it's, it's really all comes down to the guideposts of my creative sandbox way, which, you know, in a nutshell is being in that four-year-old creative sandbox mindset Mm -hmm. where there is no wrong, where it's not about the outcome. Mm -hmm. It's really all about the process, not the product. It's about following your curiosity and exploring. And, you know, I've, I've got 10 guideposts where, you know, it's all about cranking out a lot of stuff to see what happens. Think quantity, not quality. Uh, I I have a concept of small daily acts. So, Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. guidepost number four is think tiny and daily. Mm, That's, oh, that's perfect for for this audience because that's that's one of my sort of health guideposts too, Mm. right? I call it mindful, making mindful daily choices, right? Instead of creating these grand plans, which actually I'm I'm realizing there's there's more of a connection. There are more analogies between what we're talking about um, anyway, because, you know, this, this perfectionism thing that you're talking about, you know, that comes up when we have these grand plans, whether it's to, yes, create a perfect piece of art or, um, be the, the perfect, you know, air quotes, uh, um, healthy person, whatever that means. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. And perfectionism <laughs> that I, I still consider myself a recovering perfectionist. I take on, I choose to take on the label of an intentional imperfectionist. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Say more about that. Cause I, I that's, we talked about that a while back and I'm very curious about, um, yeah, because that perfectionism and that all or nothing approach to well-being is one of the ways that I see, you know, women on the rise, successful women get in their own way. I would yes. love to hear more about, yeah, that just that idea of intentional imperfection, imperfectionism as <laughs> self-care. Oh my God. It, it's been so life-changing for me. And really intentional imperfectionism is the exact same thing as self-compassion. Mm-hmm. What it really comes down to is is forgiving yourself for being human. Yeah, and it took me well into my forties to forgive myself for being human rather yeah. than superhuman and perfect. Yeah, yeah I remember totally. when I was in high school, my senior year it was close to graduation, and a good portion of the senior class took a cut day. And, and chartered a couple of buses to go to the beach. And a good friend of mine, we were sitting together on the bus. And here in Silicon Valley, it's pretty cool in the mornings. And then the fog burns off and, mm-hmm. um, and it heats up. And so we're sitting next to each other and we've got sweats on. And she, she like reaches down to scratch an itch on her leg. And she realizes that she forgot to shave one of her legs. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. <laughs> Which at age 17 or whatever is just like, oh my gosh, the oh most terrible God. thing ever. <laughs> yes, exactly. The most terrible thing ever. And if, if I had realized that I would not have told anybody, I would not have removed my sweats for the entire day. And it was a hot day at the beach, which doesn't always happen in the summer where I live. Often it's like super foggy at the beach the whole day. Mm-hmm. And instead my friend, Jenny, she, she says really loud, Oh my God, I can't believe I forgot to shave my leg. <laughs> Good and for she, her. I know, I know. Can you believe it? And she, she sort of turns around and she kind of tells a bunch of people like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. I forgot <laughs> to shave my left leg or whatever. And I'm horrified. I'm just <laughs> horrified, you know? So we get to the beach and she happily strips off her sweats and she's running around. She's playing volleyball and she's da da da. Meanwhile, I have forgotten to bring a t shirt. So all I have is a sweatshirt and I'm wearing a bikini and I. I have, I'm very, very self-conscious and I'm skinny at this point in my life. And I am very self-conscious that I don't have a flat as a pancake belly. Right. Yeah. And I also am struggling with bulimia. Mm. So what happens? Of course I binge eat. Yeah, yeah. And so this exacerbates my not flat as a pancake belly. Mm-hmm. So do you think I take off my sweatshirt? No, I leave my sweatshirt on all day long. So I am dripping with sweat, dripping with sweat all day long and refuse to take off my sweatshirt because I don't want anyone to see that my belly is not flat as a pancake. Yeah, Meanwhile, my perfect. friend with the not shaved one leg is running around having a great time. Yeah. I am having a miserable time because I cannot allow anyone to see that my belly is not flat as a pancake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is an example of how perfectionism makes our lives miserable, right? Yeah. yeah. And if on the I, flip side, how it can allow that w- with your friend, right? How it can actually open things up when you, yes. when you let it go. <laughs> she <laughs> right? just let herself be imperfect. Yeah. She's like, Hey, I forgot to shave my leg. Who cares? Right. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, Oh my God, I don't have the body of a supermodel. I can't let anybody see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I spent the entire day being miserable. Yeah. It didn't do me any good. And what I have discovered since embracing intentional imperfectionism is that life is so much better on this side. Mm -hmm. It's just so much better. And it's just taken me so long to get here. It's really, really hard to let go of perfectionism because I think for me, certainly the fear was that, I don't know, I would end up dissipating and just, I don't know, turn like just sitting there being a slob and, you know, sitting on my couch and eating bonbons all day or something and Mm -hmm. never getting anything done. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I think I, I think I am a lot more productive now as an intentional imperfectionist than I ever was as a perfectionist. And scientific studies have demonstrated over and over again that people who practice self-compassion actually achieve their goals, whatever the goals are, achieve their goals in the long run way more than people who do not practice self-compassion. And if you think about it, this makes a lot of sense because think about, let's say two groups of people have committed to going to the gym. This is an actual study. They have committed to going to the gym, I don't know, three times a week. 
I don't remember what the, a particular study, but let's just say this was the, the commitment. So group A has not been coached on self-compassion. Mm-hmm. They miss a day going to the gym. So what happens? They beat themselves up, right? Yeah. Yep. Beat themselves up. I can't believe you stupid idiot. Rah, 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 yep. Right. And another way we beat ourselves up is we say, okay, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to spend two hours on Friday instead of one hour. Mm -hmm. And then guess what happens? They miss Friday. So that means they have to spend three hours on Monday instead of two hours. And if they miss again, then that turns into what, four hours or something. So it just like compounds and compounds. And suddenly what was a reasonable commitment becomes completely impossible. Yeah a huge way we beat ourselves up. Whereas the, the group that has been taught self-compassion practices, they just let it go yeah. and they take a fresh start. And what happens is when we don't practice self-compassion, we know we're going to stumble because we're human and life happens, right? So it becomes easier and less painful to just stop trying. There's you, and then there's the you you only dream about. That you is confident, put together, and vibrant. She's through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, starting her own business, traveling solo to Tibet, or nailing her presentation at the corporate retreat. You know you have it in you, yet something keeps getting in your way. It's the daily ups and downs of life, the just this time poor decisions, and the constant reacting to everyone else's needs and never your own. The frantic pace of 21st century life has interrupted your rise to your goals. I help women like you, women on the rise, take back their health and happiness so they can make lasting changes and achieve their goals. Together, we form new habits that transform daily life from a slog to an intentional path to a brand new you. Visit laradolch.com slash Vibrant Health Playbook to learn more about my eight-week total health and wellness program for women. Vibrant Health Playbook is your ticket to the vibrant, inspired, and powerful life you're looking for. Self-compassion. I love to hear you talk about that. And again, just the the intentional imperfectionism tying into self-compassion and how it actually helps us reach our goals more effectively. Because I think that it's it's especially what I find in my work, it is it especially true in the health and wellness space. Yes. Um, there's something, you know, I guess because it is so so personal. I mean, it has to do with our bodies and the way we feel in our bodies. Um and it is not something that especially high achieving women just haven't been taught self-compassion. No, what we're taught is carry a big stick and use it on yourself liberally. That's right. That's right. And that's why we all grew up with, you know, restrictive diets and, right. you know, like the exercise regimen you were talking about. And, you know, it just becomes demotivating and, and it's, it seems counter and this is what I always say to my clients. It seems counterintuitive because as high achieving women, we have gotten certain places in our career, for example, because we had a grand plan and we had check boxes and we made it happen and we pushed and we pushed and we pushed. But in the area of happiness and self-care and well-being, it backfires. Totally backfires. Absolutely. I mean, I was bulimic for, oh my God, like, I don't know, eight or 10 years or something. And that is a classic example of backfiring. Every single day in my teens and, you know, for, I don't know, it was like 17 through early twenties, I would make a a list of what exactly what I was going to eat. And it would add up Mm -hmm. to some ridiculously low number of calories, like 800 or something stupid. Mm -hmm. And then every single day I would blow it. Yeah. 
and feel then, terrible about it. And feel to, and then I would binge, right? Because yeah. I would I would seek comfort from the exact mm-hmm. the exact foods that I was forbidding myself from eating, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then I would throw up. Yeah. And then I would feel terrible. Yeah. And then I would repeat the same cycle. It, it was this horrible, vicious cycle. And the only mm-hmm. way out of it was to remove all the restrictions and let yes. myself eat anything I wanted. Yeah. And just completely remove all the restrictions and forgive myself for being human. And it was self-compassion and mindfulness. And yeah, that forbidden food list is, is just, oh, it, it's, a ma- it's magical when you let it go. It really yes. is. You just don't care anymore. You're like, oh, it's not forbidden. Well, I don't really want it that much anyway. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if I can actually have it, it's not that interesting to me. So I'm, I'm curious about, you know, kind of in terms of, you know, we've talked a lot about how creativity feeds into this happiness. And, and um, I'm curious about daily habits that you have right now that you think most contribute to your happiness, your success, or both of those things. Yeah, my favorite daily habit is I have a daily doodle practice. Ooh, that, that sounds fun. It is so fun. And it's so interesting because it, it kind of started as an accident. It, and it started as a out of self-compassion, actually, because mm-hmm. I you can see, because we're on video right now, I have an art table behind me that currently is covered with a bunch of stuff because we're in the <laughs> middle of uh, home renovations. And I... I have this goal to create something every single day. Mm. You know, this is from my, my small daily actions, my tiny Mm -hmm. and daily guidepost number four of my, from my creative sandbox way. And I realized, I think it was the end of 2015 that I hadn't gotten to my art table for a couple of weeks and it was Mm -hmm. really bugging me. Mm -hmm. And so I thought to myself, you know, what can I do about this? One thing that I know is the thing I do first is the thing that gets done. Yeah. And I also know that I have this big computer in my studio and the gravitational pull of the computer (laughs) (laughs) is very strong. Even though my art table is literally right behind my computer, all I have to do is turn around 180 degrees and take one step and I can be at my art table, but I still wasn't wasn't making art. So what can I do before I even get into the studio? What can I do in my bedroom? And I thought, well, okay, well, I can't bring in a bunch of acrylic paint and like, you know, splash around paint or do finger painting or something, but I could bring in a Pigma Micron marker and Mm -hmm. a sketchbook and have Mm -hmm. those right by my bed on my bedside table. And I could do some doodling. Oh, which I'm, is so relaxing that just, I'm just so thinking about, relaxing. I love it. I always, people, people are like with the coloring books and stuff now yep. I, that actually stresses me out because of the perfectionism thing. I'm like all like in the lines, but doodling, there are no lines. You make no your own lines. lines. <laughs> it's so yes, great. Exactly. So, and I'm already writing in my journal every morning. Mm-hmm. That's a practice that I have. So that's basically like an anchor habit that mm-hmm. I just tacked the doodling on to the end of like a like yes. a a link on a chain right so i started doing that at the beginning of 2016 i guess it was and little did i know and i you know i i really love color but i i wanted something that i could do in just even just a few minutes every day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i didn't want to deal with 
you know, lots of materials. So just bring in a little black and white marker, you know, just a little black marker on white paper. And I started doing that and I fell in love with black and white, which Mm. was a big surprise to me. Mm -hmm. I discovered that doing a doodle every day, even if it's just a few minutes, is this amazing like meditative practice. It's Mm. this spiritual growth thing because I discover something about myself through the practice of doing it every day. Mm -hmm. And it's been profound. And the doodles that I did throughout 2016 ended up becoming the illustrations of my book, Nice, which I had no idea that was going to happen when I started doing it. So it's been this incredible practice. So yeah, and I share them on social media and, and my blog ended up becoming best like one of the planet's best doodle blogs <laughs> as a result too. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew Who that even did? existed? Exactly. That's so great. That's so great. And I love the idea of it being a meditative process because I think that's right. And you know, I um yeah, I was actually talking to a client the other day who had noticed that when she was helping her son sort his Pokemon cards, that she kind of like got into this zone because she was doing it in a very visual way. And so, you know, it, it's that kind of, and, and also the tactile piece of it, I think was really appealing to her. Um, but it's the same thing. It's like you can create these moments of being centered and calm, you know, even with something like that. I love Absolutely. it. And what, so what does um, being in that, more uh, centered place, I guess I'm going to call it, and, and please use another word if it resonates with you more, but what does being centered and well and happy allow you to do? Like, how does that allow you to impact the world in a bigger way? Mm, I love that. Well, one of the things that I have learned from one of my, I'll call her a mentor, Kelly McGonigal wrote yes, a I, book I called The Willpower Instinct that mm-hmm. was, I wrote an, uh, a blog post about it called one of my, it was my, my three most transformational reads of 2015 or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and she has a class she teaches at Stanford called the science of willpower. And mm-hmm. the, the book, the willpower instinct is based on that class. Okay. And I, th- I don't think this is in the book because I think this is a more recent study from when the book was published. Uh, but she talks about when you do something that engages your interest, it actually restores energy to your brain mm. to the to and specifically to the areas of your brain that regulate your willpower, your self-control. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. So so it's like it's like feeding, it's like amping up your willpower. Like exactly. Huh. So it's amping up your ability to stay focused, mm-hmm. your patience, your ability to stay on task, your ability to resist the temptations and distractions that pop up that I try and pull that. you off focus. So every time you do something that engages your interest, that puts you into a flow state, which guess Mm -hmm. what? Doing your creative thing does that. Yes, yes. You are feeding your willpower. Oh my gosh. I so love that because I I often talk to my clients about the fact that willpower is a finite resource, right? It does actually, when there's psychological studies to show us that it runs out. And so that's part of why the whole restriction around food and exercise is not helpful because you run out of willpower eventually. And now you've just taught us a way to replenish that willpower or or strengthen it. That's so great. I love that. That's right. And that, that study was so significant to me because 
with the clients that I work with individually around, you know, helping people get unblocked around creativity, so much of the time they feel the sense of not having permission to do their creative thing. Oh, I don't have time. I'm not yeah. good enough. You know, I need to do laundry or, or clean the toilet rather than <laughs> do my creative right. thing. Anything. Right? Yeah. Anything rather than my creative thing. There's so much resistance around it. But when, when you can point to science and say, actually, the more you do your creative thing, the thing you love to do, but you don't feel like you have permission to do, you are actually helping yourself to do the other important things in your life because yes. you are amping up your willpower every single time you do your creative thing. That's right. Which you need, like you said, to stay focused and, and productive on whatever task you're, you're doing at the time. That is such, that's such great. Like I'm just having this like major light bulb moment. Thank you so much for sharing that. Isn't and that I, I'm going to put the link to that book in the show notes too. I love Kelly McGonigal. You know, yeah. She, she doesn't talk talks. about that particular study in the book because that the study was done after the book was written. Very cool. So I hate to do this because we're coming up to time and I just want to, um, I want to keep talking for like another hour, <laughs> but I will have to do another interview because I actually would really love to hear more about that side of that. Sounds like there's a lot more great stuff that I think would be really helpful to people, but I'm going to, for now, I'm going to ask you what's next for you and what you're most excited about. Oh yeah. I am so excited right now. I just did an advanced uh, training around a methodology called Lego Serious Play. Oh, that's right. I forgot you had done that. Yeah. And that is what's next for me and what I'm most excited about. I am bringing creativity and play into organizations and using Lego Serious Play and theatrical improvisation as well. And I am especially excited about Lego Serious Play, which is an amazing methodology that uses Lego bricks and storytelling. So the, the methodology gets people to build with Lego. Everybody builds and then everybody shares their story around the what they built. What mm -hmm. they built is a metaphor and they they share the story about the whatever it is they built. And it's just such an incredibly powerful me methodology and you can use it for so many things for team building and goal setting and strategy. And it's been used uh, for big companies and um, nonprofits like United Way and the United Nations and all kinds of organizations have used this methodology to have profound impact. So and cool. municipalities for things like dealing with poverty and dealing with xenophobia and all kinds of things. It's incredibly powerful and I'm so excited about it. Oh, that's so great. So where can people learn about you and your work? Uh, the easiest way to find me is melissadinwitty.com. And because that's hard to spell, you can also <laughs> get there by going to livingacreativelife.com. And I'll put links in the show notes too. Cool. For the spelling and, challenged. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find my book at creativesandboxway.com. And then I also have a new website for my new business that will soon be up at creative sandbox, so, creativesandbox.solutions. Awesome. That's so great. I, I hope people take so, take some time to check it out because it sounds like you have some really amazing tools for helping individuals and uh, teams in, in a corporate environment as well. So thank you so much for sharing all of this good stuff. And yeah, we, we got to do this again for sure. Cool. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a total blast. That's it for this week's episode of Women on the Rise. 
Visit lauradolch.com slash podcast for show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. You can download other episodes of this podcast and subscribe in the iTunes store. If you liked what you heard, I so appreciate your reviews and recommendations because they help me reach as many women on the rise as possible. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Dave Nelson at Lens Group Media. Tune in every week for new interviews that give you the practical tools you need to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. The Riveter is a work and collaborative space built for change makers, but it's not just a desk. It's a transformative movement for all women and allies to succeed. The Riveter is a movement because it believes that everyone can have a seat at the table and access to opportunities. The organization knows that wellness and professional development can be incorporated into the daily lives of working women everywhere. And the space and events are developed to support that. It's a co-working space with purpose. The Riveter now has two locations in Seattle, and the momentum isn't stopping anytime soon. Next year, look out for a Riveter in Bellevue. Then the Riveter arrives in California and Texas. Stay up to date with them on Facebook and Instagram or at theriveter.co.